This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversations. Tonight is the first in a series about families and mental illness. This is actually my first show back after a three-month sabbatical. I'm delighted to be back in the station working with Jen Hodston. My guest tonight is Liz Brenner. We're going to be talking about her experience with a dad who had bipolar disorder. Liz is a licensed clinical social worker, and she provides consultation and education to individuals, families, and agencies from her office in Watertown, Mass. She's the director of Therapy Training Boston, an institute that refuels and inspires mental health professionals. Therapy Training Boston provides workshops and courses, the foundation of which is an intensive course in family systems therapy. Welcome to Safe Space, Liz. Thank you, Anne. Thanks for having me. So I want to start by hearing a little bit about your family, aside from mental illness. Just tell me a little bit about who is in your family. So my family, I have a mom and a dad, and they are divorced. They divorced when I was 36. They are educated, intellectual, and um, Jewish people who follow that kind of tikkun olam, like repair the world kind of thing, and they raised three highly productive children. My, I'm the oldest, and my brother is a scientist who does research that impacts cancer and obesity, and my sister is a community organizer and develops housing for um, disenfranchised people, affordable housing. So in other words, you have a highly accomplished family. Mm-hmm. Part of what I'm sensing is sort of the importance of emphasizing that this is not a broken family. Yeah, that is very important to yeah. sort of see all sides of the of the story. Yeah. So I understand your dad has bipolar disorder, mm-hmm. and I'd love to hear a little bit about just how, he, you know, what was his experience of bipolar disorder? How did it affect him? How did you see him when he was ill? Um, well, he was... Um, he was also pretty productive and a good student, and and when he was 20, when he was in college, he had some kind of breakdown, and he ended up um, being hospitalized psychiatrically twice during college, and at that time, he's 79 years old, so at that time, it was before bipolar existed, and he was um, given the sort of old, archaic version of shock treatment, and he talks about how traumatizing that was, how he woke up and there was an aide sitting next to him and he thought he was going to die and he thought they thought he was going to die and and they misdiagnosed him as schizophrenic and then he stayed away from psychiatry for about 20 years. They scared him so badly. Yeah, it was very scary. Yeah. And um, he told me that story a number of times and we didn't even talk about the illness until... Uh, in fact, I didn't know that he had bipolar disorder or manic depressive illness at the time um, until I was 20. Mm. And my parents didn't really know until I was about 12 or 13. Um, we, we did what, my, uh, what I like to call the geographic cure, which yeah. is that when he would be overtaken by depression or mania and he would either be in bed for weeks and sometimes months, not be able to go to work, or he would kind of get into difficulties in his work setting and not want to go back to face that when he was taken over by mania. Um, 
and five, so we would move. So we moved nine times by the time I was 13. Hmm. And um, at that point, my mother kind of put her foot down and said, you need to go see a psychiatrist. <laughs> wow, so, so nine moves and many needing sort of, it sounds like when he was depressed, he couldn't work and would stay in bed for months. And then you said when he was manic and he would sort of get into trouble at work. Like, what would be an example of that? Well, I wasn't. I didn't witness that so much, but I know, you know, he would be agitated and paranoid and have, you know, all these ideas about he was right and other people were wrong, and you know, he knew the way to do things, and um, you know, he would get into some pretty significant disagreements with people. Yeah. So as we know, some of the some of the. Uh, manifestations of mania are extreme irritability and grandiosity, (laughs) which is what you're saying. So, of course, those things get us into trouble with people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, you lived with that till you were 13. Your parents at that point, your mother insisted, he got help. They found out he had bipolar disorder, but they didn't tell you for another kind of seven or eight years? They didn't, and... You know, I used to think about that in a pretty negative way. Like, I thought about it in a toxic way as secrets and um, denial and um, kind of a negative sort of protection. But one of the things that my parents did this, uh, the flip side of that is my parents did an amazing job of protecting us from the illness kind of in a positive way. And even, I mean, my dad can be pretty scary when he's manic, but... I, I was not exposed to that very much until more recently. Um, and he he really stayed away from us when he was extremely irritable. And there was some violence with my mom, but um, which was very traumatic. But um, Vi- violence that you violence that you witnessed, Liz. And or? I now you know I used to think about a lot of things in a more black and white kind of way, like secrets are bad, and, you know, my mom was codependent, but as I've gotten older, and I've had to be more exposed to my dad's illness, I I realized they were really trying to protect us, and in some ways it was good, Um, but when my dad was, when I was 20, my dad had a very, very serious suicide attempt, and there was no way of hiding that. <laughs> so at that time, they ended up telling us about his illness. So it was interesting because, in a in a way, they told us when it when it was that telling us was a protection. And how was it a protection to tell you at that point? Well, I think to say your dad has an illness that caused him to try to kill himself is a little more comforting than your dad doesn't care about you, and so he was just... I see, right. You know what I mean? Yes. So, in other words, what I'm hearing you say is that your parents negotiated the telling and the not telling always around the protection of their children. I think so. And that it actually was protective to not be told for quite Mm -hmm. a while. And did you feel like in those years when he was, you know, very depressed or he was needing to move... I mean, were you and your siblings sort of talking amongst yourself and thinking, like, what's wrong with that? Or was there was that not, were you not you know, conscious of it like it that? It was so not talked about that we didn't talk about it. Um, so, you know, there were ways that that, was, that wasn't good because we didn't have a support system around what was difficult. 
Yeah, um, I mean, I can imagine if my dad was in bed for weeks or months at a time not going to work, I would be worried. Yeah, I must have been worried. <laughs> well, one would imagine you noticed it. Yeah. Yes, but it sounds like there was just the culture in your family was like, you didn't talk about that. Yeah, it was definitely a culture of silence. Yeah. And, you know, I don't remember everything about my childhood. And so I think, you know, that the trauma of that kind of intense fear and anxiety kind of spaces you out in a way, too. Yeah, so you've talked about um, growing up with someone with a mental illness or in, and continuing as an adult to have a re- close relationship with your dad as a form of relational trauma. And I'd, I'd love to hear you explain what you mean by that. Well, I think about it in two ways. I think about the relational trauma of having a mental illness for my dad and, you know, this the reason why he stayed away from psychiatry, he couldn't face it. There was something that took over his life. In fact, this this morning we were having breakfast, and he, I told him a little bit about this interview, and he said that me, that bipolar visited him or came into his life when he was 20, and it never left. And that's just so poignant. And I just can't imagine what it must be like to have your mind taken over and not to be yourself. And I find it very confusing um, when somebody has control over managing it and when the illness just is so big that it takes over. And, and so I think there's the trauma in the relationship for himself. And, you know, I was saying I, had, I would listen to your interview um, with Jim Gilligan, and he was talking about shame as being the key factor when people lose it and are violent. But for me, it kind of goes beyond shame. It goes to that horror of the trauma of the alienation of self, the potential loss of self, and also for the family member, the horror of the potential loss, like for me, the potential loss of my dad through suicide or, you know, when he's been manic in in recent years, he, he literally drove all the way from the East Coast to Vancouver and back in three weeks. Uh-huh. when he was in his late 70s and he wasn't well. You know, so the fear that he could just drive off the side of the road. and I mean, that's very traumatic. So I'm really struck by it. What you're talking about is a quality of loss of self, that for the person, it's like he he loses access to his own mind, what he identifies with as himself, mm-hmm. and all the losses and fears of that. And then you're saying that for the family, the loss of self feels quite literal, like he might have died. Mm-hmm. and the the real terror of that. After that suicide attempt when you were 20, was that something you lived in fear of for a long time? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> to some degree, I've tried to make peace with the possibility that the illness could kill him. Now, of course, one can't. You know, if you know, like if you know that somebody you love is dying of cancer, on some level you know you're going to lose them, but you never can fully face that until you have to. And it's interesting because it's it's kind of awful to say, but now, you know, more recently, as awful as it is for me when he's depressed, he, in more recent decades, he tends to go for help when he's depressed now. Um, but when he's manic, it really pulls him away from help and medication. And it's so, so horrible to deal with what happens when he's manic because it's just, crazy and chaotic and 
you know, I might get, he was ended up in the hospital in Tennessee, even though he lives in the Boston area, and you get calls from the social workers and police officers, and it's just completely out of control. So it hasn't, with age, it hasn't tempered at all. His, his awareness of when he's starting to escalate has not been able to help him prevent that. Well, oh, so let me tell you a little bit about that whole history. So after my mom insisted that he go see a psychiatrist. He was off and on medication for quite a while, and he did have some significant periods of stability. But at some point, when I was 36, the illness kind of took its toll on their relationship, and they got divorced. And he had never been psychiatrically hospitalized the entire time my parents were together, despite the fact that he wasn't on medication for many years, because I think my mom did an incredible job of trying to keep the peace, and she didn't make things worse. And um, That seems fairly powerful when you say, because, you know, people try, of course, to not make things worse and often feel, you know, completely helpless. What do, what do you mean when you say she didn't make things worse? Well, I think, you know, it doesn't make sense to argue with somebody who's drunk or manic. So I think for the most part she kind of avoided confrontation, which would totally escalate him mm-hmm. um, to to the degree that she could. I mean, the only time my parents ever fought with him was when my dad was manic. They were totally in line with their values and parenting and and got along except when mania took over. And so somehow, you know, she tried to... It doesn't mean that bad things didn't happen, but but when you compare it to after they got divorced, mm-hmm. he's been hospitalized about 12 times. And that's been in the course of about 16 years. I think without the stability of my mom, he had difficulty. And then he ended up marrying a woman who had a very, very serious medical history. She actually lived with pancreatic cancer for 11 years. And that in the last, in many, for off and on for many years, in the last few years of that was extremely, extremely stressful for my dad. And he had actually had a significant period of um, stability after he rebounded from the divorce, but then with the chronic stress of his wife was in and out of the medical hospital more times than one could count. That just really took him down. She died about a year and a half ago, and he was really in bad shape around that time. But since he's recuperated from that, he seems quite, quite stable. I'm crossing my fingers and knocking on wood. <laughs> I'm sure. I want to come back to something we started with. You made this distinction between shame and, you know, sort of saying it's even worse than that. It's really relational trauma. And you talk about it both for the family member and for the person. And I want to ask you just to say a little bit more about your observations for the person. You said something to me beforehand that I thought was very poignant about your father's negative experience with the mental health system and how mm-hmm. that made him avoid help. And I wondered if you might tell that story again now. His negative experience with the mental health system? Yes. You said to me that he spent 20 years after his initial contact trying to prove... Oh, right, right. Yeah. Trying to prove he was sane by not going to see mental health providers. Right. <laughs> Which I think is all too common. Yeah. Poignant. Well, I think even especially in that decade where the treatment was so barbaric and it was such a blunt instrument. And do you and think do you think that our current mental health system 
is much less barbaric? Yes and no. <laughs> Say more about that. I could speak more about some of, well, I think in our current system, I've I've kind of been privy to treatment in several different hospitals that he's had, and there's there's quite a variability in terms of the quality of care in different facilities from my perspective. And so much of it, I think, has to do with whether people are respectful of the quote-unquote patient and their family and whether they're treated kind of as human beings as opposed to another manic one and whether we're treated as somebody who has a story and a life and whether there's a step, you know, people can understand that there's more to us than the crisis that we're in or the illness. And, what, you know, I've had experiences where the doctor calls me and, and the first thing he says is, so tell me the history of your father's illness. Not a hello, not a how are you. And when people say how are you and mean it, I can't even tell you the difference that it makes. Just it's even that just, recognition that you are a human being and you're going through a lot while they're in the hospital. Just, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And how common or uncommon is that, Liz, for someone to slow down enough to greet you as a human being like that? If I had to put a percentage on it, I'd say maybe about a third of the time there's uh, compassion and kindness. Right, and, uh, so it's only a third, which is a pretty powerful message to the mental health community. Yeah, and some of the mistakes are so avoidable. Tell me about some of the mistakes. Um, well, first of all, in the same in the same kind of manic state of being really agitated and out of control, I've seen my dad being managed so much better on some units where people treat with him with respect and don't get into power struggles with him. And he would be managed without having to have a whole lot of, you know, medication against his will versus people not he it it makes all the difference in the world to him if people talk to him and listen to him and not just talk about the meds he recently had a psychiatrist who sat would come into his room now he was depressed at the time so it was easier to talk to him but and sat down and every single day talked to him for 20 minutes and under the care of that psychiatrist he tried a mood stabilizer which he had never been willing to try before in his entire life. And my perspective is that he's been significantly more stable since that happened. So the um, relations of the the way that the psychiatrist actually used the relationship and listened mm-hmm. to him as a human being allowed so much else to happen that could never have happened before. Yeah. So poignant, isn't it? And how rare that is these days. So, okay, so tell me more about some of the mistakes. So one of them is not listening and taking the time to really connect mm-hmm. with him as a person. Um, the other is, so there was a time when he was discharged too soon from a previous hospital and when he was manic, and he ended up in this other hospital. And the social worker told me, we will not discharge your father without consulting you about his baseline, because you know his baseline better than we do. And I was so, so comforted by that. And it was at a time when things had been very, very chaotic for a number of months. And 
in the end, the day that we were going over, my sister and I were going over for a family meeting to sort of, because it seemed like he had gotten stable enough to even participate in the family meeting, and and for us to kind of eyeball him and, and you know, kind of help them decide where he was vis-a-vis his baseline and whether it was safe for him to leave. As I was driving over to the meeting, I get a call from a social worker, and she says, the doctor decided he's being discharged after this meeting. And the only way that that's not going to happen is if he goes crazy during the meeting, essentially. So she basically said, if I were you, I would push him really hard during the meeting. Oh, my goodness, what a setup, even if that's completely not in his best interest. Total setup. And there were, it's a long story, but that's just one example. Yeah, so Um, this dilemma, this is the dilemma I hear from so many people I work with, is that in order to get someone help for long enough that it actually takes, long enough mm -hmm. that it actually matters, a person almost has to be made to be worse enough to even get access to that help. Right. Which is this terrible bind. Go ahead. Well, and one thing about that, my father, and I'm sure he's not the only person, has the capacity even when he's so taken over by mania, to pull himself together and look better in the face of professionals because he wants to get out of the hospital or he doesn't want to get into the hospital. And if people don't listen to family members, there's just so much more risk there. And, in fact, in that situation, um, a big problem happened right after he left a couple of really big problems happened. Like what do you um, mean? That could have been avoidable. So it's just really frustrating. And I understand, you know, one of the things, too, I mean, I understand better than most people, but even people who are not mental health professionals who have family members with these kinds of illnesses, we understand that there's only so much that can be done inpatient. Um Right, but what you're saying is that if someone's discharged prematurely, which of course happens all too frequently nowadays, partly because of mm-hmm. insurance pressures, um, that really bad things can happen. I mean, I wondered if you might even be more concrete when you say things had been really chaotic for months before he was in the hospital, and then a couple bad things happened after he was discharged prematurely. What well, are you talking been... about? What's that chaos, and what are those problems? Well, he had driven. He had driven all the way to. Florida, and then ended up in a hospital in Tennessee, where they ended up discharging him prematurely to my brother in the airport, and then me at Logan, and we were supposed to bring him to another hospital, and he refused, and then, um, oh, it just had been so crazy and chaotic, and his wife was dying, or very, very sick, and in and out of the hospital, and... um, and before he left this other hospital, um, his wife had power of attorney, and she took a big chunk of money out of an account to pay bills that he had accrued all this spending. And she had the legal right to do that, but I knew that that would make him, like, totally, totally angry. And I told – actually, I had told her, and I also told the people in the hospital, he should not go – before he is told that, before he's, he Uh needs to be told that while he's behind a locked door because he's going to go nuts over that. And they just wanted to discharge him, so nobody told him. And she felt sorry for him because she didn't want him to be in the hospital. 
And as soon as he found that out, he, he got aggressive, and the police ended up getting involved, and it was the first time he ever laid a hand on her, and it was just bad. Right, so here you were, you could you could anticipate that, you told mm-hmm. them, and the pressure to, to discharge was so great that really it put her at risk. Absolutely, yeah. and all of us, and in, in fact, um, there was a big family event where he was supposed to attend, but he didn't even attend because he ended up terrorizing people before that happened. Mm. So, so this is one of the really difficult things about having loving someone who can be so ill. It's this kind of chaos and danger right. that was part of and, your life. And one of the things that is really challenging for mental health professionals and for family members is to be able to separate the person from the illness. And I love, you know, that Janine Interlandi's article in the New York Times, which is so incredible. Um, yes, this is just a my, few weeks ago in the magazine, yes. Yeah. She talks about when the evil alien takes over my father. And I just think that's such a healthy way to look at it, because I know it's not my father when he's doing that horrible stuff, but yet in the moment it's really hard to separate. And for many people... Even beyond the moment, it's hard to separate. And then that's so toxic. Because how do you live well when you think that your father is just that brutal to you? You know? Right, so painful. One of the things that I know often happens with people when they're manic, too, is that they don't remember what they Mm -hmm. did. And then it's very hard to heal it because they can't remember it, and so they can't exactly apologize for it. Yeah, and absolutely. then there's this very sort of this wedge between people. Was that part of your experience yeah. also? Absolutely, yeah. And for a long, long time, I felt like I needed an apology for a lot of really awful things that happened. But I've I've come to understand that he he I know that he does not actually remember, and and I you know it's just too traumatic to remember. And and I also know that he never would want to do any of the. You know, he never would want to terrorize me in any way if he was in his right mind, when he's in his right mind. So I kind of have come beyond a need for a a more usual kind of apology that would happen with two well minds. But that is even difficult, you know, between people because we all have trouble with taking responsibility, right, for our bad behavior. Right. Right. That's an issue for everybody. So, um, Liz Brenner, we're going to have to end in a minute. I wanted to ask you one last very brief question, which is I know you yourself are a practicing mental health professional. Mm -hmm. I know you teach about this. And are there any other things you just want to end with about what you wish your colleagues working in mental health knew when they were working with a family um, who were going through something like what you went through? Well, I think the importance of really doing a very thorough systemic assessment of what's happening in the moment and not making assumptions or, you know, basing things on what, what is by the book, but really understanding in detail in the current moment what are the relationships and issues and contexts that are holding the problem and where might there be some places to maneuver to help things to get better. Because one important piece about my story, which may not be evident from all the things I've been talking about in this half hour, is that things have gotten better in a lot of different ways. And 
you know, where we never talked about the illness before. I just had breakfast with my dad this morning, and he's able to talk about it and take a certain amount of responsibility and, you know, is very invested in taking his medication at the moment. And so it's just trying to trying to do a, a formulation of the problem that includes possible pathways to change and reframe things in a positive way. That sounds so hopeful. Liz, on that note, I'm going to have to say goodbye. I want to thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space. Thank you for having me. If someone wants to reach you or contact you where you work, how can they find you? Um, Probably the easiest way is my website, which is therapytrainingboston.com. Therapytrainingboston.com. Wonderful. Liz Brenner, thank you so much. Okay, thank you. My thanks tonight, too, to Jen Hodson for mixing the sound, Maurice Leonard for the music. If you'd like to listen to this show in its entirety, please go to the website in a couple of days at www.safespaceradio.com. You can listen to all 146 shows there. You can also email them a link to friends. You can subscribe to get a weekly notification. You can like us on Facebook, and you can also download us now from iTunes. Next week, I'll be interviewing Alicia Barnes about mental illness and her family and her work with the organization Bring Change to Mind. Coming up next is The Watchdog.